0: John, life as a composer, I I think we maybe all have an impression of what that might be, (laughs) what it might be like, but maybe none of us really know what it's like, and I'm Mm. sure it's very different from every composer. How would you describe your life as a composer and your routine as a composer?
1: (laughs) Well, let's see. Where do I start? I guess I could start at the... uh, at the other end, which is what it's like to be sitting in the audience hearing a piece of yours next to somebody who doesn't know they're sitting next to the composer. (laughs) Uh, John just mentioned to me that he seated himself right behind me tomorrow night, so I have to watch my body English. Pardon the expression. Uh, Yeah. When you, uh, when you hear your piece, of course, I, I, as, as, as John mentioned, I, I, I do c- conduct a lot. And I, I do like to conduct my own music as well as other music. Um, but part of the reason I enjoy doing it is because it's very, very difficult for me to sit still in an audience and <laughs> watch my pieces be performed. Um, it's not that I want to run up on stage and push the conductor aside and say, here, let me show you how this is supposed to go. Although, <laughs> 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 it's more its more just that, uh, you know, as, as I, I think any creative artist, we look at our work, whether we're a painter or a playwright or a composer or a choreographer, and all we see is what's wrong with it. And uh, it's very, very hard to just relax and you know, let the splendor of your creation wash over you and enjoy it. That's why, you know, artists, creative artists, always tend to be just uh, a little bit distracted and and uh, puzzled. Um, I I wanted to be a composer from a very very young age, and for a while I thought that was very unusual until I had my own children. And it wasn't just watching them, but it was watching their (coughs) friends uh, that I realized that most children are very creative and want to make things, want to write movie scripts and and poetry and and compose songs. And um, it's just life gets in the way. Parents don't quite get it, or worse still, they do get it and they're terrified that they won't, you know, they'll grow up having a life of of struggle and not be good enough. And maybe there isn't, maybe there's a kind of Darwinian logic to that, because you have to be very, very, very good to survive in the arts. Um, But I had I was very lucky because I had parents, uh, neither of whom were able to finish college. I mean my mother never went to college at all, and my father went a year and then the depression hit. So for them, um, the arts and culture was uh, were the holy grail, and they never talked about wouldn't you like to be a lawyer or a, uh, you know a businessman or something um, they wanted me to be an artist, which I you know, think is kind of amazing. Um, so I was stimulated from an early age, and uh, I began composing when I was about eight or so, and uh, I never stopped. It's, it's just part of my uh, DNA, I guess you could say.
0: John, was there a moment um, in your career when you felt, um, yes, I'm a successful composer? Was there a turning point? Was there a time when you thought, actually, I think this is really working, people are recognizing the work I'm doing, I'm feeling confident and ambitious, and yeah. this is absolutely – I just can't wait yeah. to just keep going over the next years. I think
1: last Tuesday. <laughs> 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 but then Wednesday, Wednesday it, w- it w- all went away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, it's actually kind of wonderful uh, right about, you know, in the last ten years or so that it's really become possible, in part due to people like you, John, that, that uh, composers actually can make a living. You know, they get commissioned, they're getting sponsored, they're getting uh, enough performances that they can, you know, they, they actually can call themselves in their passport. <laughs> you know, when it says occupation, I had to fill out a... When I came into Heathrow today, I had to fill out this thing, you know, when was my birthday, and then there's this cute little thing that says occupation, and I wrote composer, you know, and I thought, how strange. (laughs) I'm I'm sure every time I do that at at Heathrow, you know, I I never know whether they're going to say, would you step over here, sir? (laughs) Um, uh, Or, as has several times happened, but only in England, Oh, I love harmonium. <laughs> um, so sometimes uh, uh, I, I need to rewind my jokes. Uh, but but it is possible now to become successful. Um, whereas when I was young, uh, you know, starting out, um, there were almost no models, at least in the United States. It was it was virtually impossible to survive as as a full time serious composer of classical music. I mean, the only living model at that time was probably Aaron Copeland. And even Aaron Copeland wrote books and movie scores uh, to survive. Um, So to answer your question seriously, I I think I probably felt, uh, around about the time that I wrote Nixon in China, I I felt that, you know, I, I I could probably write composer on that form and, mm-hmm. and not feel that I was – it was wishful thinking. John,
0: a, a question that I ask myself all of the time, and I wonder what your view is. It. It's something that troubles me, and it's a challenge, and I don't think we've solved it, and I've got no answers, and so you may, you may have some answers. But wha- what is it about the mix of opera as an art form? And a provocative contemporary subject when brought together causes this eruption of an outburst of response an outrage I, I'm not saying it happens all the time yeah but what is it about opera and the aesthetic of opera coming into a theater and watching an opera a contemporary opera that People, uh, you know, if you go and see the full Munich, or you go and see contemporary play, or you go to visual arts and see a contemporary exhibition, what is it about opera that causes such an outburst of emotion?
1: Well, uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what you mean. Are you, are you talking about going, and the, and the going uh, g- to Tosca and well being no, deeply... No,
0: no, no, I think it is specifically about contemporary opera and a contemporary composer dealing with a modern oh, subject yeah, and taking yeah. on a modern subject in the opera house. Yeah. Wh- why are these outbursts of, uh, of emotion, a lot of negative emotions, about from the opera world within <coughs> itself, but also from, you yeah. know, people from across the arts, that in a sense feel, one feels that when you're in the middle of it,
1: yeah.
0: you're being told you shouldn't be doing this in an opera right. house. An o- o- opera house is about Tosca, well, it's about Bohème, I mean
1: it's about... Let's cut to the chase and, say, discuss the death of Klinghoffer. Uh, <laughs> because I think that's what you're alluding to. Um, although, obviously, there are, yeah. there are others. Um, I think, uh, well, I've written three operas based on 20th century uh, historical events. Um, one about the atomic bomb one about the uh, collision of capitalism and communism uh, in the guise of Nixon meeting Mao, and then of course the death of Klinghoffer. I think they all were controversial because people have, some people have very um, precise ideas about what opera ought to be do and what the plots ought to be, and particularly even how the stories should go. Um, and there I- is something very emotional about opera. I mean, first of all, it's music. And music is the art form that more than any other art form makes you feel. Uh, certainly we feel deeply when we read great poetry. We can be brought to tears by, you know any number of great writers. Um, I think the plastic arts affect us, but less on the emotional level the way music does. But music, more than anything else, just gets us in our feeling function. And so when you join the power of music to uh, a story, or to human figures, uh, or to a, a mythic theme that people have very, very strong, you know, feelings about. Um, it amplifies it in a very uncomfortable way. So, in the case of the death of Klinghoffer, um, people, even people going to the theater who didn't even think they had an attitude about let's say, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians, or about terrorism, when they suddenly experience this expressed in music uh, and all the other art forms that come into this amazing combination that we call opera, because it isn't just music. It's, it's, it's words. It's, it's uh, imagery, visual imagery. It's uh, movement. If you have a really, really great opera director, someone like Peter Sellers, whom I've been working with for almost 30 years now, uh, f- for whom the, art, uh, the experience of opera is a complete immersion in every imaginable sensory experience, uh, you know, the intellectual and the and the oral and the visual, um, then it's an overwhelming experience. And if it touches on a, a subject that you don't agree with, for example, this opera. Then the the responses are very very strong. I mean, it's really interesting because I mean there have been movies that have dealt with this subject um, from different points of view. Generally, movies made in the United States always um, are critical of the. Um, Muslim or Palestinian, whatever you want, however you want to describe it. Um, so people come already pre-wired and they see something. They see a, an opera that begins with uh, a chorus who are speaking on behalf of this group of people, the Palestinians, and telling their story, their version, of the myth. Now, uh, I use that term myth very advisedly and it gets people very angry because I use it also when I speak about Israel and about the Jews, because they have their myth too. We all have our myths. Uh, We can't live without them. And so that is the first narrative, that that opens the opera, and it just really, really sets people off because it's set very, very uh, bittersweet, melancholy music that over a period of about nine minutes modulates into into just horrific, violent anger. Um, And, you know, if it were in the movies or if it were a play, you know, in some dark theater where people are just sitting around on on stools having a kind of Tony Kushner argument, uh, people might write a long letter of protest, but it—it it, they don't get as fired up as they do when it's music.
0: Just just rewinding to your the idea of Death of Klinkhofer and um, working with Alice and Peter right at the beginning of the inception of the project. Mm. Um, presumably um, the libretto, the synopsis libretto came first, but at that point, did you have um an intuition of the sort of musical language you thought the subject yeah. would take or did that develop just when you were writing it how early <coughs> on with the yeah. idea because yeah. i mean what strikes i mean that the score is overwhelmingly beautiful but yeah. it's incredibly complex
1: yeah.
0: it's fractured it's has these uh, uh, immense outbursts <laughs> And enter- I mean, did you, yeah. did you, you, know, did you have this color
1: of the score very early on in your own mm-hmm. mind? That's interesting. I just did a, a television interview about an hour ago, and I was asked a really very piquant question by the woman who was interviewing me. She said, how do you feel about the ethics of writing such beautiful music <laughs> <laughs> in a story like this? And then she said something about the and I got her <coughs> message but uh you know i I don't know how the language came to me to tell you the truth i you know the I had finished Nixon in China in nineteen eighty seven and I began the death of Klinghoffer in nineteen in, in about a year and a half later and uh I knew that the language, the musical language of Nixon and China, wasn't in any way appropriate for this story. You know, the Nixon and China music is—it's uh, sort of big band meets minimalism—and <laughs> um, you know, it was appropriate for for uh, these big scenes where the. Air Force One lands on the runway, and and the that's a very powerful
0: The moment. Red Army, yeah, yeah you
1: know, and and it's sort of it's fun. I don't know where it comes from. It's it it's like my musical gene pool is just full of. It's got Wagner and Beethoven and Liberace and and. <laughs> You know it's just full of all these things, and it's sort of you know it could come out in Nixon and China because Nixon is Nixon you know he's a compl- these politicians and even Mao they're all these kind of phony people that you know they tweak their personalities to get votes um, and in the in this story, the death of Klinghoffer, I had to go the absolute opposite route and find a music that was as 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 Absolutely honest and and sincere as I could as I could make it. Um, so I think the language evolved in the course of c- of creating it. That's the only thing I can say, and that's the wonderful thing about opera. It's why I love to write dramatic music, um, because I would never come up with uh, if I were writing just symphonies or string quartets or you know oboe sonatas. I'd never come up with the musical language that I did to describe you know the f- the desert floor uh, of new mexico the, in the in the minutes before an atomic bomb went off, or um, m- one of my favorite moments in the death of Klinghoffer is just the captain reminiscing about just being alone on the. Bridge of the ship on a warm night, and just just talking about what it's like to be to to have the solitude of being out on the ocean, um, and having his thoughts just kind of come and go. Um, <laughs> Alice Goodman gave me the hardest line to set. You'll hear it tomorrow night. I hope you marvel at my setting. <laughs> Here's the line In the interminable hours of navigation <laughs> thoughts thoughts take place and the same skill that steers the ship makes intellect an animal
0: <laughs> So 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 what is that re- the relationship between composer and librettist I mean did you think for a moment I think Alice could you revise that line <laughs> or I mean really you know was it an intense relationship? I mean, she's, our, an, in our, she's our an intense lady. She's been she in rehearsals <laughs> and she's been absolutely wonderful. But she's very intense yeah. lady. I mean,
1: I mean, was your relationship and journey with her an intense relationship? It made the Israeli-Palestinian conflict <laughs> seem like a love fest. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, how did you how
0: did you resolve? How do you? How do you resolve those conflicts in the creative room with a librettist?
1: It it was just terrible. Um, You know, first of all, and maybe just as well, we were about 8,000 miles apart, uh, but that wasn't far enough. Um, Thank God it was in the era before email, that's the only thing I can say. Um, You know, in retrospect and in hindsight, I can say that I really understand her frustration because um, a poet is a poet, and they write something that is organic. It's a it's it's a whole. You know, it's it's not meant to be um, <coughs> taken apart or cut or massaged. And I I have an ethic about setting poetry. I mean, I. I I set every word that I, you know, decided to set. And I don't move words around or cheat and, uh, you know, put in another word that is easier musically mm. to set. Mm. I really respect mm. the text. But the bottom line is you have to cut things. And you have to do things with the text. Sometimes I'd, she'd give me a very important line and it would only have so many beats in it. And I would have to repeat Something three or four times to make it musically right, and it ruined the prosody. You know, it ruined the natural flow of the poetry. Um, I don't know how many people in this room remember if they were at the Doctor Atomic performances that I set this very famous poem, "Batter My Heart, uh, Three person God," by by John Donne, and <laughs> you know to. St- the way i said it i had i had to repeat words to fill out this musical sentence and most most music lovers got it you know oh i love your aria it's just terrific but i played it at a seminar where there was a a, a poetry professor at yale university and she simply went ballistic <laughs> because she felt that i had just violated every structural and formal uh, you know, <coughs> notion of what a whole, what a sonnet is uh, so it was a it was a tough collaboration mm. and I, I mm. think it was also hard because Alice and I were very we were very nervous um, you know we knew we were tackling a a very complicated subject and that you know, were already getting angry mail, and then... Did you, did you specifically keep your distance from the family? Uh, you know, they never approached me. They, uh, One of the daughters contacted the producers, and I think was passed on to Peter Sellers, and offered to consult. And told him that she had been involved in the making of two made-for-TV movies. And we saw those movies and we all agreed they were really terrible. Um, they were they were just not it wasn't that we didn't agree with them politically. I mean they were just um, you know they had no humanity or poetry in them. They were just kind of like gangster movies. And furthermore, I, I mean, we did, I didn't want Nixon calling me up and saying, you know, I, I sat on the left of Mao. Uh, <laughs> and,
0: and,
1: and so I think, you know, calling up the, the Klinghoffer daughters and, and asking, you know, how, how did this go just seemed like the wrong move for this. And I think they were offended by that. I think they felt you know, that this story belonged to them. It mm. was, after all, their father who was shot. And then, of course, when they saw um, the production in Brooklyn, they, they, um, they denounced it. Mm. There's a wonderful m-
0: moment in the opera, the, the role of the Austrian woman. And um, it's played by Catherine Harris in this production. It's a cameo role. It's about three or four minutes long. And the Austrian Which woman basically, terrific. basically um, locks herself in the cabin while the hijacking is going on. And um, it's a cameo role. It's not very long. It's a s- written in a sort of Sprechstimmer, half singing, half speaking, brilliantly performed by Catherine Harris. And this extraordinary orchestration of, um, of very John Adams, but a sort of. A hint of Schoenberg, mm-hmm. it's an, it, it's an incredible moment and a wonderful violin solo, which is played brilliantly um, <laughs> by um, our, our leader of the orchestra. Um, well, I have to say that, th- that tell there me about there that. There scene. are lots
1: of buried, buried uh, kind of musical jokes in that yeah. scene because the Austrian woman is is clearly a bigot. You know, I mean she doesn't come out and say i didn't want to be with those Jews but she virtually you know she doesn't want to be with any of these people and she's terrified of what happened and she locks herself in her in her bathroom in bathroom. Her, in, in her state you know you can imagine how small a bathroom in a ocean liner is and she spends the entire period of the hijacking um, on the floor and all she had was a little piece of chocolate um, so I set her, as John mentioned, in Sprechstimme, which, of course, the great uh, model for that is Piero Luner, uh, composed by one of the great Austrian composers, Arnold Schoenberg. So their little their little quotes are they're not exactly quotes, but they're, yeah, they're sort of hints of of. Uh, of Schoenberg. And, and so you get this strange Viennese <laughs> quality going on while she's muttering on about how awful those other passengers are. Mm. So.
0: And there's another moment with a British dancing girl. Yes. And, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about this, because I, 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 I think we're close to getting it right in terms of how we cast it. Yeah. Because I, re- I remember <laughs> you talk, when we were casting the Death of Klinghoffer yeah. film, feature film. We we talked about this role a lot, and again, it's a cameo role where one of the the, the dancing girls. Who I think there were five dancing girls on the ship, and there's this her uh, you know reflecting. Uh, well, tell us a little bit about well, the musical the language the because the it comes from nowhere. yes yeah.
1: it, it's well an extraordinary four that minutes. character came because we had uh, I do not know how we got a hold of this. We got some amazing source material. Um, I mean, this opera is so thoroughly researched. Almost every word that the captain sings is based on his memoirs and uh, all kinds of, you know, firsthand events. And I remember having in my hand a cassette tape of an interview with this young British girl who couldn't have been more than 20 or 21, Mm -hmm. and she spoke with a really, really strong cockney accent. And she was telling her story. Hmm. Um, somebody had interviewed her, and 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 she was talking about the terrorists and, and one of them, Omar. She said, was extremely nice, and uh, <laughs> and gave us ciggies. And um, then she talks about Rambo, who was the uh, the most abusive of the uh, of the terrorist, and and how he strutted around a lot, but actually she didn't really fear him because it's the big ones who make a lot a lot of noise who really you don 't worry about it 's the quiet ones uh they're the ones that you worry about they 're the ones that are going to turn around and shoot you because they they're the believers uh, when it came to that point musically i i uh i don't know i mean how yeah, do you how do you typify do you, uh, a uh, cockney dancing yes. girl who's yeah. you know uh, she's Probably listen to uh I don't know, this is what, 1985? eight nineteen eighty-five. I'm not even sure what you'd be listening Wham. to then. What would it be? Wham. Wham. Okay. Well, I probably show my age because my music is probably more I don't know, Batula Clark or something. <laughs> no, not that far back. But but um Anyway, it goes there. I, I, th- I think we've, we've got a great girl.
0: Her, her, <laughs> her, she's a pop singer and records all around things. Actually, I was looking at her. I didn't know a lot about her. I was looking at all her stuff on YouTube today, which was fascinating. Anyway, <laughs> I, hope we've, I, hope we've, I hope we've got it right, John. Look, I think we should just take some questions, have a little breather. Who's got a question for John or a question about anything? Yes, sir.
1: Sometime... The end of this century, beginning the next. Week, looking back, and this is a classic. Some producer is going to produce the original version of this. How will you, wherever you, maybe feel about this? And could you discuss how the revision versions happened? Uh, by original version. Uh, well, you mean? The production or? No, or like Russell, before the cut of the scene. Oh. I uh, actually, as long as my copyright is held, that won't happen. (laughs) (laughs) So it would be a very long time, (laughs) (laughs) won't it? Uh, You know, I I went back and listened to that. I actually have a recording of that scene, and um, you know, that scene was intended to be a a a little comedy, like a Seinfeld episode um, that broke. It broke the intensity between the Palestinian and the, and the Israeli choruses. And it was of a, you know, a Jewish family in New Jersey who knew the Klinghoffers. offers. And, and uh, you know Alice really drew on her Jewish family life. and um, you know, I thought most of the humor in it was, literally, if it had been on a Seinfeld program, everybody would have laughed. Um, but in the context of just having followed a, a chorus in which Palestinians speak of their rage, it was, it was considered very hurtful and very harmful. And I, I didn't want to hurt, I didn't want to uh, offend people. Uh, and so I took it out. And, you know, I'm all right with it out. I, I think actually having the two choruses abutting each other is, is, makes a very, very powerful statement. Norman. I'm just trying to wrap my brain, on Whether there are any kind of precedents, what you might call contemporary historical operas, which are not allegorical, before you, (laughs) can you think of any that you've heard about or in the history of opera? I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. The Cradle Will Rock by Mark Blitzstein. is that is that does that kind of Hmm. Not really. No, No. not
0: really.
1: I I don't know. I mean, obviously Philip Glass is Einstein on the Beach, but but that's a very abstract uh, piece. And Satyagraha, uh, which which was hugely influential for me. Outside the language of minimalism. Yeah. I don't think so. Um, I I really don't think so. I think opera up to that point always dealt sort of either in the mythic realm or. You know, Verdi would take contemporary novels, um, you know, romances like *La Traviata*, um, but it wasn't so much a political thing; it was a small Mm. personal story. So, I guess not. More questions?
0: Yeah, sir. I'm always interested in Genesis. How how did the idea spark?
1: Where did it come from? You? Did it come from elsewhere? And how did you find the? Uh, the, the librettist. Uh, ha, ha, we had worked together before on Nixon and China. Um, she was a classmate of, of Peter Sellers. Uh, he, he. This opera was his idea. Um, um, the original plan was a far bigger thing, and this. Uh, the murder of Klinghoffer was supposed to be the first half of the opera and then the second half was supposed to be a kind of black comedy that dealt had you know Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and Oliver North and the US Army and um, but as soon as soon as I got Alice's first, choruses and I began setting it, I realized that this was a really serious opera and that a black comedy just was inappropriate. And furthermore, it it, it needed an entire evening to tell the story. Um, you know, with that said, um, I have to say I'm really thrilled. I have not seen Tom Morris's production. Tomorrow night will be as new for me as it is for those of us here in the room who haven't seen it. And I'm thrilled about it. Um, um, there have been, I've, I've lost count, probably at least 10 or 12 different productions over the last 20 years. Uh, I've been told that a very, very beautiful one was done in, in Rotterdam and it was extremely abstract. Um, a movie was made that was as realistic as you could imagine where the director actually taught the singers how to handle a, a Kalashnikov rifle. And shoot it. Um, that's a little too <laughs> too <laughs> graphic for me. We 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 have been doing that too. You've been doing that yeah. too. Okay. Yeah. Well, but uh, you know, it, it it's always a shock for a composer to walk in to a new <coughs> production and see how somebody else experiences his music. Um, and I, n- I know that I'll uh, you know I'll I'll be like one of those waveforms tomorrow night. <laughs> you know, uh, probably up and down. But part of that is is just knocking myself out of my habits. You know, I've gotten habitual in the way I think of a certain scene or a certain emotion. And and it takes a a brilliant director, and Tom Morris is certainly that, to um, shake me out of that. So that's one of the great uh, learning experiences of being a composer, is seeing what other people do with your work. One more question. Shelley at the back. Uh, It's a dual question. I oh, know this is kind of Sophie's choice thing, but which of your offspring is your favorite? And of the of the contemporary pieces, which opera, which contemporary opera would you go out of your way to see? Would I evaluate?
0: No, which would you go out of your way to see?
1: Which of your pieces of is mine? Of your favorite? And equally... Oh, you mean which of other opera
0: composers? Opera would you actually go out of your
1: <laughs> well, I like all of my operas for different reasons. How's, no, that, for, that. how's that for <laughs> avoiding that? Uh, and uh, well, I, I, you know, as I mentioned, I, I, I really was profoundly moved by Satyagraha. I thought that was a beautiful marriage of, of a certain kind of musical language and a theme, which is about passive resistance. Um, I, I, and I thought that the uh, Messian, Saint-Francois was a masterpiece. I haven't really seen any other contemporary operas that have, have done it for me. Um, but then again, I don't go very often. You know, um, I really am strangely um, like that party we had in the 19th century, the know-nothings. <laughs> you know, I, I tend to stay home and cultivate my own garden. <laughs>
0: I think there's one more question at the back, gentleman at the back, oh, yes. Yes, it was um, based on what you were saying about how it wasn't that easy to write composer um, as your profession. If you had done something other than to become a composer, what do you think it would have been? And is there any connection between what that might have been and being a composer? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: I don't know. Uh, I, mean, I, I like to write. Um, and I, I've written a book. And, and I sometimes write book reviews for the New York Times because it's fun. Uh, and I write moderately well for a composer. Uh, I might have done something in literature, uh, but I can't write like Alice Good. <laughs> um, I might have been a performer. I enjoy performing. Um, but I just couldn't imagine a life of just doing nothing but performing. So it's a tough, tough question to answer. John, thank you. Sure, thank so you. So much, John. Really. So, really.